now listening to Grace City Portland. Uh, guys, let's, let's uh, jump into uh, God's Word. If you have a Bible, we're going to go ahead and, and jump right in. You're very welcome to grab one of the Bibles in our boxes in the center aisle here. I think there might be some over there as well. Um, and most of the text that we'll be covering this morning will be on our screen up here as well. Uh, we are going to actually pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. We've been working through a seven-week sermon series entitled, Are We There Yet? And the big idea is... Um, we've, been, we've been working through a few books, primarily the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, looking, about, looking at how God rescued his people out of slavery, out of darkness, and then promised to lead them to the place, the life, the land that he had promised their forefathers, Abraham originally, Isaac, Jacob, and but before they get there, there's this epic journey. There's a process. And the process, the journey, it's full of tensions. And it's actually, theologically speaking, uh, a picture of the life that we're living as followers of Jesus. And obviously, it is different, significantly different, but the parallels are significant. And in fact, we referenced this, or I've referenced this for several times in the past few weeks. But the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 he, he uses the story that we've been working our way through, this journey from out of slavery to God's people's destination. The Apostle Paul referenced this journey as an example for followers of Jesus, uh, Christians, New, New Testament believers, if you will, as an example for us to look to as a warning, as encouragement, as a type of model for how we're meant to view our life as we follow Jesus, navigating all of the ups and the downs, the tensions, having been saved and yet still being saved in the process, having been rescued out of slavery, yet still looking forward to the day when Jesus would return and complete the good work that he has begun. So it's our story, and that's what we've been up to. This week, uh, like I said, we are literally going to pick up right where we left off two weeks ago. So this is uh, week six now, and then we'll finish next week, which will be the seventh week. Um, let's go ahead and go to the next slide. We're going to be back in Exodus chapter 33, I believe. Yeah. Starting in verse 12. Now, this is the conversation that takes place between Moses, who's been leading God's people, uh, the prophet, uh, and God himself, just in the wake of the golden calf debacle. Uh, Moses used, or God used Moses, rather, to uh, rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt, took them through the wilderness to finally arrive at the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, where his people were meant to worship him, were meant to receive the commandments, the 10 words, so they might become his people. They might start acting like his treasured possession, the special people that he chose out of all the people on the earth to represent to the rest of the world who he is, what he's like, and through them begin to restore all of creation. It did not go well. Moses was up on the mountain. 
Less than 40 days go by and they start worshiping another god. They, they, they begin to do what we call idolatry. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Not a good thing. This is the conversation that takes place next. Here we go. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, and the Lord said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he and Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring me or bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you've spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. While my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Next slide. I'm entitling this FaceTime versus Favor, a chat with God in the wake of gross idolatry. There's a handful of uh, moments, stories, conversations like this throughout the scripture that set precedents. This is a precedential conversation. It says something uh, about God, about this man Moses, who has determined to know God, to walk with him, to experience his presence. It's precedential in that some of the things that it reveals about who God is, what he's like, and what what it's meant to look like for a human being, another person, to relate to this God, it's precedential in that it, it affects every other aspect of how we follow God, of what we know about God, of what it looks like to seek God. I find this 
this story, this conversation, so interesting, so bizarre, and so profound in that it's nothing like what you would think it should be. It doesn't transpire anything like what I might expect it to. Um, the, the, the golden calf debacle, the idolatry, God bringing his people to the mountain to rescue them, to teach them, to change them, to, to lead them on to the promised land does not work out. It, it goes like worse than, than you could possibly fathom. In fact, the result is God says, look, uh, several thousand people end up dying. A plague breaks out. God judges his people. It's a very, very difficult thing to, to grapple with, emotionally speaking. Like God would judge his people so severely that the consequences of this rebellion, the, the, the idolatry that we read about at the base of the mountain is so extreme that God judges his people and the result is, is, uh, is death. The consequences of sin ultimately is always death. And then this conversation takes place. What God says is, look, this is not going to work out. Paraphrasing. You go ahead, you go on. In fact, I'll even send an angel to go before you. The land's still there. I made a promise. God said, I made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God never, ever, ever breaks his promises. He is faithful even when we're not. So he says, look, the land is still there. I will still fulfill my promise. So you go. You're the descendant. You're the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You go. But I'm staying here. If I were to go with you, I would, I would most likely end up consuming you. The scriptures describe God as a consuming fire. And he says, you're so stiff-necked. You're so stubborn. You go, best I stay here. Now, one might think that that's like not a bad deal. It's like, whew, okay, great, fine. At least we still get the land. At least we still get like the promise. Kind of a bummer that like our God is, is, is telling us to go on without him, but at least we have his favor. The conversation that transpires, Moses says, look at, I'm glad I have your favor. I'm, I'm glad that you know me. I'm glad that you know me by name. But if you don't go with us, please don't send me. I don't want to go without you. Moses refuses to receive God's favor or the result of God's favor if it means giving up face time with the Lord. It sets a precedence for how we're meant to relate with God. Verse 13, it says, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. God says, fine, I will go with you. I will go with you. Isn't it interesting how uh, 
it would seem as if God changes his mind? Doesn't that just sort of mess with your theology a little bit? Like, how does that work? Is this, does this mess with you just a little bit? I hope it does. It should. This says something about how we understand the, um, the sovereignty of God. The, uh, what's, what, what do theologians say? Um, meticulous, not sovereignty, meticulous, um, what's the word, Anyone? You're like, you should know this. <laughs> the way God leads his people seems to be intertwined with our response to him, our desires, our willingness to obey, to trust, to rebel. This is not just a fixed trajectory. He is faithful, and yet he leaves so much room for us to make real choices with real consequences that actually really affect how he relates and responds to us. I love that about God. He says, I will go with you. Fine, I will. This very thing that you've spoken, verse 17, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. But Moses says, God... Would you please show me your glory? I'm happy you're going with us. Thank God. But I don't want you to just go with us. I want you to go with us. I want to know that your glory is being manifest in this process. I want to know who you are. This is precedential. This should be deeply challenging for the way we relate with God. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. I think, this is based on my personal experience, I think most of us would be quite happy to simply settle for the promise, even if it meant leaving God behind. I think that, and this is not a good thing, This is something to be challenged by. But I think a lot of us end up by default thinking of or relating to God as if he's a bit like Santa Claus. Like we're quite happy for him to sneak into my house at night, drop off the gifts, but I don't want to get up Christmas morning and see the big man in red like laid out on the couch. I just want him to drop off the gifts. I don't necessarily want him to like move into my house. Is this not, is this not true? Oftentimes when we're praying for things, when we're, we're struggling with life, when, when things have not gone according to plan, because things have not gone according to plan. Everything has fallen apart at this stage in the journey. It couldn't have, it couldn't have gone any worse. And now God says, look at, okay, you've got my favor. My promise is still intact. The land is yours. It's waiting for you. Go. I think most of us would have been like, sweet, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. But Moses says, I don't just want your stuff. I don't want you to just affirm my ways. I don't want you to just give me what I want. I want to know your ways. I want to know who you are. 
I want to experience you. I want to see your face. So notice he says, show me your glory. And God responds, says, I will. But you can't see my face. And we'll talk a bit about that in just a second. But Moses is saying, I want to know you. I want to experience more of you. I want to know your ways. I want to know your name. I want to see your glory manifest among us. I want to experience the weight of who you are. And it sets a precedent, it sets a precedent in three ways. Number one, it sets a precedent for what spiritual maturity really looks like. Number two, it sets a precedence for what relational health is all about. And number three, it says something profound about what I would describe as missional effectiveness or fruitfulness, if you will. Number one, it says something about spiritual maturity. Uh, let me read to you uh, a little clip out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I referenced Paul a minute ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, Paul writes, he says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I grew up, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. He is describing spiritual growth. He's describing what it looks like to stop acting, thinking, being like a spiritual infant and growing up. He says part of growing up, the process of growing up, isn't just knowing that you are known. It isn't simply knowing that you have gotten God's attention, that he loves you, that he's forgiven you, that you are his child. That's the starting point, and that is awesome. That's a really amazing thing. But as we grow up, something happens in our thinking that we realize it's not enough that I've just been known. I want to know as I've been known. I want to see God's face fully. I don't want God to simply affirm my ways or give me his stuff. I want to bless my God. I want to know what he's like. I want to honor him. I want to see him glorified in my life. I'm not just trying to get his stuff. I don't just need the land. I need God. I want more of him. I want to experience more of him. I want to understand his ways. It becomes less about me, what I can get from God, it becomes more about my God and how I can honor him, how I can give more of myself to him because I want to see his glory in my life. <laughs> Moses, he refuses to go for the milk and honey what God said when he talked about the land, it's the land full of milk and honey. It's funny, Moses had the milk and honey. If you go back in the story, several pages, you'll remember that this guy, Moses, he was 
born as a prince in Egypt. He was royalty. He grew up in the house of Pharaoh, the ruler of, at at this time, of an extremely powerful and wealthy nation. He had the milk and honey. Been there, done that. And he gave it all up. Do you remember why Moses left in the first place? Yeah, he murdered someone. He was wanted for murder. Couldn't stand the corruption anymore. He snapped because uh, his people were being oppressed. He didn't want to be part of it anymore. And hopefully if we're growing, spiritually speaking, something should happen in you Something should snap inside of every one of us that eventually says, to varying degrees, you know what, I, I am sick of seeing people abused. I am grieved at the oppression that I see around me. And I don't want to just use God to get stuff from him. I want to be used by God to see others set free. I'm not just coming to this place, to church for example, to get something for myself. I'm here to empty myself out, to seek God's face, to understand his ways that I might be used by him in a world that desperately needs more of his life, that needs more sacrificial love, that needs to experience more peace, joy, the things that God is, all that he's like, his ways. So we begin to grow up. It sets a precedent for relational health. This is the second thing. It's interesting. um, You know, I think, again, I'm generalizing in my experience. Most of us, when it comes to our relationships, um, anyone ever have like a relational difficulty? (laughs) Ever, Ever experienced this? Anyone ever been married? My wife and I, we're, we're on a great, great, we're at a great place in our marriage at the moment. It was not always that way. Um, and I reckon we'll, we'll have, you know, there's moments to come. There you are. Um, when things, like it, when things were really, really hard, when things were like, like crazy hard, like, I'm losing my mind hard. Like, what have I done? Hard. You know what I'm saying, right? No, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, my problem in life with this relationship is that my, my wife, this person that I love, that I'm in a relationship, just needs to, like, alter her behavior. She's my problem. The way she's acting is bothering me. It's making my life difficult. It's perhaps even hurting me emotionally. And I just need her to stop it. <laughs> and if she, if, she could, if she will, she could just stop doing what she's doing or being the way she's being, then I will be happy. I will be happy. My life will be better. And, and I somehow equate that with, like, relational health. Um, it, it couldn't be anything further from relational health. It's just utterly selfish and self-centered. The way we see Moses interacting with God isn't 
Moses simply trying to manipulate God into doing something for him. He's seeking to understand God like he's never done before. He's not just trying to get the Lord to be different, to stop doing one thing and stop acting according to his will. Moses is seeking to understand this God that he's in relationship with. You know what relational health looks like? It's not avoiding conflict. It's not when everything's easy and when the person you're in a relationship with is acting the way that makes you happy. It's when things are hard, you seek to understand the person you're in relationship with. It's very easy just to get annoyed with someone. It's very easy to think to yourself, if you would just stop being like that, we would be good. If you would just stop doing this thing that offends me, or hurts my feelings, or, or threatens me, if you could just alter your behavior, then I would be happy and we would be good. But relationships don't work like that, because there's always two sides. Let me tell you. Shh. In conflict, relational health is always seeking understanding. Now, ultimately, we all have sin that we need to repent of. We all do things that we shouldn't be doing. Look, I, I've, I'm sure I've done plenty to hurt my wife, to damage our relationship, and I've had to change a lot. I've had to get on my knees and repent and ask God to forgive me and ask my wife to forgive me, and I've had to alter my behavior along the way and vice versa. But if you've ever done any marriage counseling whatsoever, you ever, if you've ever been to a council, never mind being married, we're not all married here, obviously. But any good counselor will tell you, if you want to change something about your relationships and the relational turmoil that you're, you're processing through, do not waste your time or energy trying to change someone else. That's actually counterproductive. If you want to work on yourself, that would be a great place to start. And God will help you do that. But as far as you and that other person goes, seek to understand them. Listen to them. Desire to know their ways. Because there is a reason for the way they act. Probably has something to do with some pain that they're processing. And if you really want to help them, listen to them. Try to understand them. Comfort them. There may be consequences. I think this is probably worth uh, emphasizing. There were consequences in this relationship that we're reading about. People died. One of the, you talk about precedence in scripture, one of the things that we find uh, early on, way back in the book of Genesis, is that there was a flood. And because the evil in creation, the evil in the world become so, had become so rampant that God had to step in and act as judge and kill a lot of people. Again, this is, this is, people ask me sometimes, why do you talk about this stuff at church? This is, I don't like it when you talk about this stuff. We have to talk about this stuff. Because eventually, if, you're, if you plan on reading the Bible at all, you're going to come across some of these things. You're going to be like, what in the world? 
We find that God is a judge. Another precedent that we find is that God is a savior. He's constantly rescuing people from evil and from themselves. Because we're all culpable. One of the greatest, no, the greatest precedent in all of scripture is God revealed in Christ on the cross where the judge becomes the judged for us. Where justice and mercy come together. Another precedent that is set in this conversation is the precedent for missional effectiveness. I love how Moses says, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses is thinking about, yeah, but when we get there, How will the people around us know that there's anything different about us whatsoever? How will we make impact? How will we stand apart? How will people know who you are and what you're like if we're not distinct? Is it not in your going with us? Is it not in your presence being apparent with us that people will know that we belong to you, that we are distinct? And so he's thinking missionally. I love, uh, again, quoting the Apostle Paul back in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, At the outset of the letter, he's talking about how when he first came to the Corinthians, he says, did I come to you with eloquent words of wisdom and speech? No. He said, I didn't come to you with like lofty wisdom or eloquent speech. I came to you knowing one thing, and that is Christ and him crucified. And I communicated that, not in eloquence, but by a demonstration of the Spirit. The only reason that my words had any impact in your life, the only reason we're going to have any impact in this world around us isn't because of our cleverness. Because I've got it all figured out. My arguments are better than yours. There's always going to be someone else way smarter than me out there, I'll tell you that. But it's in God's presence with us that we're distinct. Now, some people might call that like mysticism. Some people get really uncomfortable. Like, well, but what does that mean? That sounds, that sounds entirely too subjective. Like, is that a feeling? Is, it, like, is gold dust meant to fall from the ceiling? Like, maybe, maybe I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But I do know that Moses says, don't go don't send me unless you promise to go with us because if you're not with us, there's going to be nothing distinct about us. You know, I think we church, if I can be critical of the church for a minute, I think we spend way too much time and energy and money trying to manufacture experiences and moments and feelings and, and, and stuff without reminding ourselves that all of this is for naught if the Spirit of Christ is not present with us. And I believe he is. I don't doubt his presence. But in our thinking, we need to remember that there's nothing distinct about us apart from God's presence with us. And that's not something you can manufacture. I think it's something that you can 
pray for, you can cry out to God for, which is, guys, why I will never, ever, ever stop trying to get people to come pray with me on Tuesday morning. I know, like, there's nothing magical about Tuesday morning, okay? I know it doesn't work for some people. I get it. I get it. Um, we pray with Door of Hope here. This is their building. We lease it from them. Some, some, some of our grace people are here. Some of the Door of Hope people are here. Uh, Josh White, the pastor of Door of Hope. Um, I've asked them a few times. Now, they're a much bigger church, eight, 900,000 people. So they've got, a, they've got a you know, slightly bigger crowd here on a Tuesday morning. I asked Josh, I'm like, Josh, how do you get your people to come here and pray? He's like, oh, it's easy. I just guilt trip them. And he's like, <laughs> I laugh. I'm like, ha, 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 And he's like, no, seriously, I guilt trip them. I'm like, can we do that? <laughs> I don't have it in me. <clears throat> or maybe I just don't know how. Guys, I don't, I don't want, I don't even want to try to do mission, to impact this world around us and, and to see Jesus at work in his church, his church. Um, what am I trying to say? I do want to see him at work in his church. Uh, I don't want to waste time and energy doing things that, that anyone could manufacture, any religion, any atheist, any community, any sports team, any, any group of people. There's a whole lot of stuff we can do that requires none of God whatsoever. And I think that, that applies to a whole lot of life. It's like, I don't need God to be successful in my, my career. I don't, I don't even need God to stay married. I don't need God to to gather a little crowd in a building on a Sunday morning. And I don't don't mean to sound harsh. I simply want to be a people that is distinct for one reason and one reason alone is because God is at work in his people. God is at work in his people. He's doing things so obviously beyond us. This is how we're distinct. This is how mission is done. Now, of course, this compels us to act in all sorts of beautiful and wonderful and powerful. And, you know, it's not like we just sit here and wait for the presence to come. No, no, we, we do stuff. We say stuff. We get our hands dirty. We, we serve one another. We get in the trenches and we roll up our sleeves and we love people sacrificially the way God has loved us in Jesus. So don't get me wrong. And we, we give our money, we give our time, we set up chairs, and all of these practical things, they matter, they're important, they're meaningful, in so much as God's presence within it all. You follow me? This was one of the tensions. Thirdly, no, that was the third one. Yeah, there it is. Let me close on this. So how do, how do we do this? So this is the question. Okay. Let's say you're like, yeah, that sounds great, Simon. Let's, instead of just settling for God's favor, let's seek his face. Instead of viewing God like Santa Claus, simply wanting him to drop off the gifts, like we still love Santa. Oh, we really like the gifts. 
Let's, let's stop doing that and say, God, we want to know your ways. We want to experience more of you. We want, we want to see you glorified. We don't want this. I want to decrease so that you might increase. And we begin to change the way we think. We repent. We stop thinking one way. We begin to think this way. And we can all agree. So yes, let's, let's do that. Let's seek the face of God. You know how the Bible ends? The very last chapter, Revelation 22. 22 verse 4. It ends by saying, and all of God's people shall see his face. That's the end of the story. That's new. It's actually in the context of John describing his vision of the new Jerusalem. That's where we're getting to. The new Jerusalem, the city of God where heaven touches down. Where the kingdom of heaven finally coincides with earth. And creation is filled with his glory. And his people shall see his face. I want to be one of those people. How do we do it? How do we do that? Theologically, we get in the rock. Okay, theologically speaking, no one sees the face of God and lives. And so God puts us on the rock. Who's the rock? Jesus. He's the rock. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says it explicitly. The rock is Christ. We need to be in Jesus that means there's nothing in me. We sang it this morning. I can't earn it. I can't muster it. I can't somehow manufacture it. I can simply surrender to God and say, I, if you were to appear right now, I would be incinerated in a moment. Your glory is too powerful. You are too perfect. You are too awesome. I would be consumed in the presence of a holy God. Only in the rock and I see the face of God. This is why Jesus took all of my sin into himself and died for me so that I could stand with confidence in the throne room of God so that I could enter into his presence not only survive, but crawl up onto his lap and be embraced by Father. Secondly, we need to be a people who are, Gab, I love what you said this morning. We, we need to not just beg for more of God's presence, but we need to have hearts that are open to more of God's presence. God doesn't withhold his spirit from anyone who asks. But what we can ask for is, God, open my heart wider. Open the eyes of my heart even wider. Give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that I can know you better. Fill your heart with more of my spirit. I need more of Christ in me. The more I learn to rest in him, the more he comes to rest in me. And he fills us with his spirit. This is not like, I say this all the time because I realize that within churchdom there's these weird like theological divides and one of those divides is are you a sort of a a spirit filled one of these crazy types you lift your hands in worship or are you more like kind of normal more like and forgive me i'm not from oregon there i said it i'm from california i'm actually from california i'm so sorry i'm so sorry but I always tell people, you know, I was living in the UK for 10 years before I came here, so that's my 
That's my out. <laughs> but there is something about Oregonians. It's, it's a very reserved kind of people, and that's fine. That's fine. It's totally fine. Because we don't need this weird sort of division between, like, are we spirit-filled or this or that or the other. No, we need to be a spirit-filled people. We need to hunger for more of the Spirit of God. We need to ask God to open our hearts wider, to, to receive more of Him. We need to get... <laughs> you're getting into it, Austin. Go on. <laughs> we need, like Paul says, to be those who get drunk in the Spirit. I'm sorry, but I just love that. Be the kind of people who get belligerent in the Spirit of God. Hmm. We need to seek his face. Here, here's, um, here's my closing. A, ch- a challenge and an encouragement. This year, I'm not saying like a New Year's resolution kind of thing, but this year, think about how you can seek his face more. You know, uh, we didn't read it, but if we back up a passage, it says that Moses, uh, before the whole golden calf debacle, it said that Moses would go out to the tent of meeting and would meet with God and speak to him face to face. Like a, like a person would talk to his friend. This is the kind of relationship he had with God. And it said that he would go out to the tent of meeting and all the people would rise and stand at the door of their tent and watch Moses go. There was one, though, who would go with Moses. It was Joshua. And the scriptures even say, this is chapter 33 in Exodus, the scriptures even say that after Moses left the tent of meeting, little Joshua would remain He would stay in the tent. I think a lot of us, we come to church and we watch Hannah lead worship and we watch me preach or we watch others do things and maybe we get a little involved. Here's my challenge. Don't just watch others seek the face of God. Run after him yourself. Figure out a way to get closer to Jesus, to see more of him, to experience what it actually feels like to be intimate with your creator, to grow in your relationship with him. Because let me tell you something, I don't care how long you or I have been a Christian, you have only just begun. You've only just begun. So seek his face. You say, well, how do I do that? Guys, there's nothing we do as a church that doesn't somehow hopefully facilitate that. In fact, we try very hard to like do very little. This is a whole lot of stuff that we could do just to like kill time and feel more Christian or more spiritual. We do things as a church to say, well, if you do this, heck, you serve in Kid City. Let me tell you something. You get around those little ones and start talking to them about Jesus, I guarantee you, you are going to experience more of the presence of God. Some of you are like, "Mm, I've actually tried that. All right, fair enough. Get baptized next Friday. Come worship with us next Friday. Come fast, fast with us. Uh, we're going to start on the 6th of January. We're going to do five days of prayer and fast. 
Some of you are like, yeah, I'm going to stand at my tent door and watch you walk on by. Good luck. Good luck with that. Really? Maybe this was my guilt trip. Let's all fast together. Maybe you can't do five days of food. That might be medically irresponsible. But we can seek the face of God together radically like never before. That's what fasting is. Seeking the face of God, denying our flesh so that we might get closer to our God. Take our transformations class. Join an ecclesia, finally. Do Alpha. I could go on and on and on all of these things. And if it's none of those things, I could give you a list of, of, of 10 others. Seek God. That's the challenge. Here's the encouragement, and this is where we'll end. Can we stand together? Here's the encouragement. God is seeking us. He's not far. He's not hiding. Even when you think he's hiding, it's, it's, I believe, truly a means to draw us out, to draw us closer to himself. God is a pursuing God. He's chasing us down. He's looking. He leaves the 99 to go running after the one. He left heaven to come to earth. He's not a God who stands aloof. He's a God who's running to us. When the prodigal son, you guys remember the story, he left home and he finally came to his senses and he began the long journey back. As soon as the father saw his son peeking up over the horizon, said the father took off running. God is chasing you down.